Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to open it to the book of Lamentations. If you're new to the gospel, it's the book right after Jeremiah, which is right after Isaiah, which is in the middle. So that'll help you find it if you have trouble finding verses or the books. We used this text last week in chapter 2 and verse 14. That's our text. It's interesting that in the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Bible, it begins as a preface to the book of Lamentations by saying this. And it came to pass after Israel had been carried captive and Jerusalem was become desolate that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem and said, and it begins with verse 1, how doth the city set solitary that was full of people. And he begins to weep over the condition that Jerusalem and Judah and God's people had come to. That was what he was weeping over. They say he sat outside the city. Some say traditionally he said where Golgotha is today. Some say another place. But it is believed that Jeremiah, upon seeing the Chaldean army, the Babylonians come down and just desolating the whole city, carrying away captive all the people and the children, leaving a few of those insignificant ones who would never uprise again, just devastated the place. And Jeremiah sat over there and just wept. He didn't say, I told you, I told you, but the Bible says he wept. He wept because he cared and because he knew that what had just happened really didn't have to happen. He saw it coming because God showed him that. There's a lot of people that would probably say, oh, but we're God's people. We remember the good old days when the power of God was coming forth and there was a great move of God and we saw the Red Sea open and we saw Miriam dancing and we saw Moses go up on the mountain. We saw Joshua cross the Jordan. We saw Jericho's walls fall. We saw the giants succumb to our armies. And you know what? A lot of us who were... In the beginning of something, I was there. I remember a whole lot of when this whole faith thing started. And I saw the glory of it, the power, the excitement of it, the enthusiasm of it, and how we just talked all the time and met all the time. It was the most exciting thing that we'd ever known. We had got saved. Our eyes got open. We were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we had a reason, not just to belong to church, but we had a reason to approach this world with a new view of it. God had promised us all these wonderful promises, and we began to exercise our newfound faith in those things, and things happened. Man, it was so exciting. We talked about it all the time. We talked and talked and talked and met and sang. Oh, we sang. But you know what I have found, just like he did, and I'm not a weeping prophet because I am a far stretch from a prophet. But I found that a lot of people who saw things early on are seeing things today, and it shouldn't be like it is. Instead of progressing and growing and becoming mature and solid in what was given to us, it seems like a lot of people take it for granted now. That's good, that's fine, but there's no pop in it. Now, I believe when Jeremiah saw what he saw, he saw the people begin to relax their convictions. Oh, they were still going to the temple. They, you know, Isaiah spoke of this. They were still doing all the religious stuff they were supposed to do. 
If it was written on a piece of paper, they would do that. And that was their duty to God. They did their duty. They went through their rituals and their routines and they did all of that. But as you begin to look at their lives, they begin to be difficult with each other. They begin to flirt with idols and they begin to follow idols. They loved idols. We spoke of it last week of Baalism. You know, something that gives us what we want, not what he gives us. We want it our way. And people begin to look at this and look at that and begin to talk themselves out of the old convictions and the old paths. And we begin to talk to ourselves about why we were just a little bit overdone then and now we're seeing a little better and we begin to do things we shouldn't do go places we shouldn't go and involve ourselves in things we shouldn't involve in and make decisions we shouldn't make. We shouldn't make those now after all these years. But Jeremiah saw it coming. He said, I'm telling you folks, you better straighten up. You're going into captivity. There's another world and another kingdom's going to come and overtake you. You're not paying attention anymore. Your heart's not where it should be anymore and things are going to happen to you. And I'm telling you, And he was probably the only one in all the nation to talk like that. As he describes in his book, Jeremiah, and discusses in this book, Lamentations, he said, it's these messengers that have come your way. These prophets. There was a time when if a prophet came to town, a prophet of God, the people said, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, what's this mean? Are you coming in peace? Because he was the message of God. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have books. They had no way of reading. That was what the priests would do, the teaching priests. And the prophets would come along. And the prophets had the word of God, and they followed that. They believed that. They feared that. But when they began to listen to other prophets with a different slant, they began to go a different direction. They begin to decline, and Jeremiah said, you're really messing up. And they threw this man in prisons. They hated this man. They threw him in a dungeon. They tried to starve him. They just a bony old prophet. And they hated the man. They hated him because he had truth. And people came to the place where they didn't want truth anymore. As Isaiah said, don't prophesy to us about the Holy One of Israel. Come on, man. Prophesy to us smooth things. Remember that? Prophesy illusions. Make up stories. Make it sound good. Make us feel good. That's why we come to church. We want to feel good. We want to feel good about ourselves. Don't be talking to us about sin and righteousness and holiness and living. Give us a break. And these prophets did. They gave them what they wanted. They yielded to them. They let them have all of that. Jeremiah said in his book in Jeremiah 23, these prophets are not only prophesying falsehood to you, but they're making you vain. Vain means useless, having no value. That's what vanity is. He said, they're making you vain. Now let's read chapter 2 and verse 14. Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for you false burdens and causes of banishment. One translation says this. It said, the visions of prophets that prophesy to you what they have seen are false visions. They're false and foolish. They are deceitful. They're useless. They're vain. In other words, what they are telling you 
Boy, this is so true right now as I speak. What they're telling you that you really want to hear will be worthless in the day of judgment and trial because nothing you're hearing has any substance to it that God will honor when you need God to help you. They're not telling you the right things. They're telling you what you want to hear. And people like that. He went on to say, but they have seen for you false words driving you away. They have tickled your ears and they have gave you what you wanted to hear. You were looking for a church. Well, I'm looking for a church to go to. I'm looking for a certain kind of church. So you look for one and you finally find one. It says what you want to hear. It does things the way you feel comfortable with. And it's not necessarily, are they saying the truth? Am I being challenged? Am I being convicted about my life and how I live? And is preparation being made for the coming of the Lord? It's just that I like the atmosphere. I like the way he preaches, and I like uh, the, the good vibes I get. And Jeremiah said, you're going into captivity. They said, we hate you. He said, I don't care if you do hate me. God didn't make me a prophet so I'd be popular and have my name on Time Magazine. God gave me a message, the most unlikely of people with a message that people don't want to hear, but he said, it's what you got to hear because if you don't listen to this, you will be judged. Nobody believed him. Nobody listened to him. Nobody followed him. Let me ask you a question. Can what I just said happen to you? Can it happen to us then? Could it happen to the church in America in the 21st century? Look in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4 and verse 8, just those two verses. Now, this is just one part of the New Testament which talks like this or describes this because there's much more than this. I've just picked these two verses out of the New Testament because the same warning that Jeremiah gave to his people is the same warning that is given to us in the New Testament. And here's what he said. In verse 4, remember this phrase, lest any man should beguile you with what? Enticing words. Can that be? Enticing words means persuasive words. Well, is it not true? Again, based on something I just said, is it not true that people like to listen to people whose speech, whose manner of speech, or whose way of describing things that pleases them? I mean, that's natural. It's nothing unusual about that. Maybe it's a very humorous way. I like the entertainment value of that. It's fun. I like to listen to him or go there. Or maybe he's very, very studious and very accomplished and intellectual, and I like the way he makes me feel good about sitting under him because I know I'm sitting under a big head, somebody that's smart. And we kind of derive a certain kind of pleasure from that kind of an atmosphere. But the warning is, it's not how you're hearing the word, but what are you hearing? What are you listening to? What are you being told? What are they saying? Because this is your responsibility, mine and yours. Let no man deceive you. Don't let me deceive you. Don't let anybody else deceive you or beguile you with enticing words. Beguile means to reason falsely. Think of this now. Let no man cause you to think wrong. Let no man cause you to reach a false conclusion about your life or God. 
This word beguile was used in another popular verse in the Bible. You don't have to turn to it. But James chapter 1, verse 22, he said, Be ye doers of the word. That's a decision you have to make. Be ye doers of the word and not just hearers only, which is what most Christians are. And you know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. Most church folks don't intend to really do what they hear, but they like to hear it. Like Jeremiah 5 said, the prophets prophesy falsely, the priests bear rule by their own means, and my people love to have it so. They like that because they don't have to do anything but just listen to the thing, watch the show, follow the meeting. In James chapter 1, he says, if you're a hearer of the word and you're not a doer of the word, you will deceive yourself. Remember that phrase? Deceiving your own self? Well, the word deceive is the same as the word beguile. It means to reason falsely. That if you listen to the word without the intention of at least finding out if that's accurate, and if it's accurate of doing it, you will eventually begin to be your own judge in your own life, and you begin to reach wrong conclusions. You'll reason falsely. And the easiest way to reason falsely is just say, well, that's his opinion, which means you are making up your own rules as you go. Well, I, he said that, you know, that's just his opinion. But he said, if you're a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, you will beguile your own self. You keep talking yourself out of what you ought to do or keep telling yourself why you don't have to do that. Or you keep telling yourself why, well, that's just his opinion. And I think that's a little extreme or he's too legalistic. And one day you'll find yourself not really knowing what you believe. You really don't know what you believe. You talked yourself out of so much. And here one day at a time in your life, you need all that God has given you. And you're not even sure if that works now. He said, if you're a hearer of the word and you're not a doer, you'll draw false conclusions about your own life, about God, about the church, about the end times, about holiness, about commitment. You just draw false conclusions. You talk yourself out of it. Look at verse 8, Colossians 2. He said, beware lest any man spoil you. That's rob you, take away from you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, that is the way the world is doing it now, and after the rudiments or the elements, it's the world system. That's what's retraining you from the old ways. The Red Sea, Jericho, Moses, all those ways that God spoke so clearly to God's people are being replaced. But yeah, but now you see, that was for them. Now here's what God is saying, man, just be cool. Stuff like that. And there's a generation that comes that says, yeah, I like that. Because that old voice, like Jeremiah's voice, was just an irritating voice. All that old do this and do that stuff. Man. And things begin to change. And folks, I'm telling you this morning, do with it wherever you want to. What we see in the days of this Chaldean judgment, in the last days, it's going to happen very similar in the church. God has to start his judgment here because it must be so that those who are sleeping are going to be awakened out of their sleep or they will be judged. God is righteous and holy. Sin is sin. He has to judge it. If sin is creeping into our life, he must alert us or judge us. And because he loves us, he chastens us and gets us ready. And that's another sermon anyway. So we go back to this text, Lamentations 2, if you'll go back to that. Remember the warning now that Paul also said, 
concerning the Antichrist, he said, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, all kinds of error and all kinds of presentations of wrong, this Antichrist is going to declare to the last day a different and a new way. And the Bible says the folks in that day will be judged because they loved not the word of his truth. They wanted something else instead of that word. And they're going to be judged. Lamentations 2, 14 again. And they have not uncovered your iniquity. Remember it said, they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity in the middle of that verse. Do you see that? All right. One translation says, they have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives. In other words, the prophets, the preachers, the messengers have not uncovered your iniquity. Now, I'm assuming they could see it or they saw it, but knew that it would have been unpopular to deal with it. Because people can get so set in their ways, they don't want to change. Be like going into a Baptist church this morning and preaching on the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I don't care how accurate you said it and how absolutely true what you said was, they will probably dismiss you. I was dismissed from a church once while I was preaching. A Methodist church. Preacher came up, asked me to stop in front of a whole church. And I did. It was his church. I wasn't going to say, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm here. But people don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. They get so set in what a man and the traditions of man formed in them and their ancestors years ago, and they're so set in a system of man, the traditions of man, they will not change. I don't care what you declare. If you don't say it the way they heard it, they won't receive it. No wonder Jeremiah wept because God must judge anything that is different than the way he wants it, doesn't he? Of course he does. Another translation in Lamentations 2, concerning that middle part, it says, these prophets have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. Another translation says, they have not made clear to you your sin so that you might be changed. Now, there's two things I want to say this morning, just two points I want to make. The two have to deal with the reason that the church and individuals are in captivity. It's because of their iniquity. Now, he said so in the Bible. Again, in verse 14, he said, they have not uncovered your iniquity to turn away your captivity. Your captivity is the result of your iniquity. Are you with me? Okay. You have gone into captivity. You're living far below the level you should, and your whole life is living in wonder of why the Bible doesn't work for you. We read this, but he said your iniquity, whatever that word actually means, your iniquity is the reason you are made a slave to the enemy who is robbing you and spoiling you. And you don't have to live in iniquity and be robbed and spoiled as God's people. Because the message that God will send to you is that you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Not bound, but free. Jesus came at this very first 
time he spoke after this temptation, he read that part in Isaiah 61. He said he came to set the captives free, to loose the prisoners. We've been held captive by not only the law and the power it had over us, but people were just bound to customs and traditions and bound to their opinions and bound to their ideas. And the word that God came to set you free doesn't feel good. Sometimes it's a weighty word. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got to deal with it. You've got to come to the conclusion that agrees with God that he is altogether right, you're altogether wrong, and the only way that you're going to be blessed is to do it his way and give up all the stuff in the world. And yet most people won't. They're like Lot's wife. They could walk away for a little while. They couldn't stand the idea that what was going on behind her was as bad as it sounded like it was going on, the thunder and the lightning and the balls of fire falling, and she looked back. But she shouldn't have looked back. She shouldn't have looked back, but she did, but that was her choice. God's a righteous God. If he says it, he must do it. And so iniquity, he said here, is the ruin of you all. The word iniquity is one of the major words in the Bible for sin. You got sin and you got transgressions and you got iniquities. Iniquity is a word which has to do with your relation to yourself. Sin is in relation to God. Transgression is more or less in relation to what God has said. But iniquity is more in relation to you, how you are relating to what God said in your life. The word means a twisting or corruption. Twisted. In application, it's a word which has to do with a corrupt twisting of right standards. It would be like you hearing what God said, but not liking it that way. Or your mind says, well, if you live that way, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't be able, you wouldn't, you would be out. So you begin to twist or distort or pervert the scriptures so that they say what you want it to say. When it comes to preaching, iniquity is a result of the preacher telling you not what God says, but telling you what you want it to say so that you like what he said and you're happy with it and you two have a good relationship. And he gets a lot of money. <laughs> Maybe not a lot, but he knows that if he courts your favor, he's got your friendship. He knows if he says certain things, you're not going to like it because he might have seen you at a ball game acting like a regular heathen, threatening somebody to smack them in the mouth or something, and he saw that. And he thought, that's not good. He shouldn't do that, but he doesn't deal with it because he knows if he does, he might hit you in the mouth. <laughs> now, yeah, I'm just saying that's what make a point. So he leaves you alone. Let's face it. Most preachers, almost all preachers are hired by a congregation. Isn't that right? Yes. He's their employee. He's supposed to marry all their children, bury all their old people. He's supposed to present himself well in the community and make people think well of the church because of that nice minister down there. And they're supposed to take care of him and provide him a parsonage and a couple perks, at least a couple of perks, maybe a little help with his insurance, maybe a little Fannie Mae, IRA, some kind of A and give him a few breaks. It's kind of like a job. 
It's kind of like a job. I mean, I graduate and I present myself to congregations. Come on. Who wants to bid on me? I'm for sale. He doesn't say it that way, but... So the pulpit committee comes and tries him out. Let's hear you preach one time. So, boy, he gives it his best sugar stick. They say, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, you like it? Yeah, we want you. A little church, but it's a good place to start. He knows if he can build that church up and maybe fill the walls up, he'll be heard of, and the bigger church will want him. It's not like there's any real commitment to the people. A dedication to their well-being, make sure they're saved and ready to go to heaven he just uses him as a stepping stone to his next goal. That's a bigger church and more money and better perks. I hope you don't think I'm rude when I say this because I'm telling you exactly the way it works. I've run around with more preachers than you all have. I know what they talk about. I know how they discuss their situations. It's not this commitment to a group of people. It's a commitment to yourself to do yourself better. Use the people. So you say what they like to hear. You say what makes people come to church. You do what excites the crowd, and you just participate in whatever they want you to do, and you bow to whatever they tell you to do. You're just a servant. And God help you if you get filled with the Holy Ghost. My Baptist friend named Don many years ago didn't even get to preach one morning. They finally found out that he was a gas Midas. And they prevented him from coming into church. They said, Brother Don, you can't preach this morning. Well, why? They've heard some things about you and they're voting. The congregation voted without him because they can do that. He's not the head of that church. He doesn't run the church. The people do. They tell him what to do. He has no say. He's hired man. And they voted him out because he was a gas Midas. Now, that would be humorous make a good story, a chapter in the book. But it shows you the level of knowledge that at least that one little church in Henryville, Indiana had. What's a gas Midas? Is it a car that gets good mileage? Is it a king with a lot of gas tanks? They meant charismatic. They didn't vote him out because he was charismatic. They couldn't either pronounce it or couldn't remember how they said it, so they just used the word gas Midas. A congregation of people. It didn't matter if what this man's experience was, was true. I told him personally that if your congregation finds out you're talking to me, they'll fire you, and they did. I'm telling you, folks, that the average congregation of people just wants it a certain way for a certain length of time. That's it, brother. It's because of their iniquity. Iniquity has more to do with self-rule, selfishness, self-serving, self, self and more self. Tell me about how good I am so that I can say I'm good. Tell me why I'm right so I can say I'm right. Tell me why I'm going to heaven so I can say I'm going to heaven. Shut up. I'm going to heaven. That's the way they talk to each other. Get out of my way or I'll hit you in the mouth, but I'm going to heaven. 
and we are ugly people and we drive bad and we talk bad and we think bad and the community knows how we are and, and we're trying to deceive ourselves and thinking we're all right when our heart says you're not all right. And the preacher ought to tell you you're not right. And they ought to tell you you can't do that. You can't act like that. That's not acceptable to God. Well, that's just your opinion. Because the other church I go to, they live together and they have social drinks and they have parties and Halloween and all the other things that they do and everybody's happy. You know why? Because they have no knowledge. And you know why people go into captivity? Iniquities people go into captivity? They go into captivity because they have no knowledge. That's Isaiah 5.13. That's Hosea 6, 4, same thing. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You have rejected knowledge, Hosea said. I will not only reject you, but I will reject your children. And look at a generation of kids, with a few exceptions, a, a whole generation of kids is not interested to the, any nth degree in the things of God. And if they are, it's always some festival of singing with people looking like the world. Singing like the world. The pictures, I get these brochures all the time about a big something fire and, and it's on a stage and all these singers. They show pictures of all these groups and they're all standing around like this. Or they got hair cut crazy and dyed colors. And but see, if I say that, it'd be like Jeremiah. That's just your opinion. You're just out of touch. You're too old. Let me tell you two things about that. I am not out of touch and I am not too old. tell you that. <laughs> this is what a translation I would never recommend, but it is a translation and it said it like this, but I think this is right on the head. If there was only a verse in this translation that I could approve of, I would probably approve of this one. He says, your prophets had nothing to tell you but lies. Their preaching deceived you by never exposing your sin. And then notice what it says. They make you think you do not need to repent. And ask the average church person today what repent is, and they say, I don't know. What is it? They didn't come to the Lord because they repented. They came to the Lord because they held up their hand. They came to the Lord because they got baptized. They joined church. They haven't changed. They never repented. They're never sorry for their sins. They're not even sure what sin is. Sin is just a word, isn't it? They never saw any reason why they should quit doing the things they used to do or why those old disturbing things in their life should die or go to a cross. What are you talking about? They don't know. They really don't know. And this is why their captivity not only has already come, but an army is coming, just like in Jeremiah's day, and they're going to be taken captives. They're going to be judged. It's going to happen, not because I said it, it's going to happen because God said it. Another translation, listen to this. Your prophets saw misleading visions about you. They painted a good picture of you. They gave you false prophecies that misled you. You know, here we are in the middle of a book that nobody reads, Lamentations. You could read it in 10 minutes if you read slow. Talking about something that happened a long time ago. And the very thing, right here in Lamentations 2.14, one little verse, one little tiny verse is exactly 
what's happening right now in America in the year 2010. It's happening right now. And people don't seem to care. I know you do, but there's so many that don't. You know what the Bible said in Psalm 5, what God says about iniquity and people who are self-serving and doing it their own way and looking for people to tell them things they want to hear their own way. He says, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Could that be in the Bible? Could it be that there is something about self-rule and selfishness that God hates? He didn't say he hated their decision. He said he hates all workers of iniquity. You know, we always heard God loves the sinner, but he hates their sin. Well, in Psalm 5, 5, it says, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. That's how God feels about us when we kind of fold our arms up. I don't know about that, or we don't want to do it his way, and I don't want to go, and I just do it your own way. That's self-rule. They were warned. God told all these people. The psalmist even said, we are his enemies. If we're iniquitous, we're working against him. In Psalm 92 and verse 9, he says, all the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. I'm talking about this morning, meism, about me, about self, please me. The whole world is about this. All the advertisements you see is to make you want it, to, for you to be happy. If you drink this stuff, look what you'll look like. Ha, ha, and a ha. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd like to look like, no, I wouldn't. You know, go there and this is the kind of fun you'll have. Right. It's all about me. And it's the reason, the underlying reason in a church that people are so unforgiving. I have been offended. You are in my seat. And the one sitting there looks on the back and says, am I? He looks on the back of his seat and he says, I don't see your name on the seat. You're in my seat. And they never get over it. Years ago, I heard about a, two men in a church in a country, at either Methodist or Baptist in Kentucky. Two men belonged to the same church, and one of them was offended by a deal the other one made once, and for all those years, they were, I'd heard they were both deacons in the same church and never spoke to each other. And the preacher, I'll tell you one thing about that, if he's a hireling, he better leave that alone too, because they'll both fire him. They never got fixed. They never repented of what they did. One of them's already gone. Oh, they held that grudge. You offended me. Because of full of self, iniquity, iniquitous. God hates it. Iniquity is going to be the ruin of a lot of people. The opposite of iniquity is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He is altogether right. And anytime you don't agree, you're altogether wrong. That you are a needy soul, poor in spirit. You don't have near enough of what you need. You need more every day. That's when you begin to humble yourself and lower yourself unto God to do things his way. Become resentful 
overly sensitive. You take everything people said wrong, or you take things that people say, hey, how you doing this morning? Well, I wonder what he meant by that. He probably meant, how you doing? <laughs> like, are you okay? Good to see you. Uh-huh. You ever run into anybody like that? Probably not. You know why they never change? Because they never listen. Because if you preach at them, well, he's preaching at me. I don't like that kind of preaching. I'm not coming back. So they don't get fixed. They don't repent and get turned around. They just get offended because they're full of me. You speak against me. I don't like you. Or the lady one time who tore the little paper on the seat says, reserved. Tore it up. That's not scriptural. Let me tell you another thing that's not scriptural. <laughs> but we won't go into that. You think she would be happy if I said, neither are you? Which eventually, it, in a different way, it came to that. Well, I'm not coming back to that church. I said, praise the Lord. I told her, I said, praise the Lord. I don't want you back. I told her, I don't want you back here. I can't pastor you. I didn't tell her, but you're a pastor's nightmare because you're so full of yourself. You're just full of yourself. You've been allowed to have your way your whole life. Your parents gave it to you. Your husband probably let you do whatever you please. You become an outspoken, opinionated, difficult person who is so easily offended, full of resentment and unforgiveness, and nobody can get along with you. Iniquity does that to us. That's what happens when we begin to be selfish people. It's why in Jeremiah 5, I quoted a while ago, you know, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests are doing their own thing, but it's not hurting us and I'm kind of enjoying this. And, and the Bible says the people love to have it so because it feeds self. The thing that has to go to the cross is all this stuff I'm talking about, and it rarely does. It rarely does in charismatic circles, in places like this. Just a little thing hiding in there waiting. If you offend me, I'm going to come out. And God's going to make sure you're offended so you can find out just exactly how much of a commitment to God you have made. And you find yourself flaring up and, and holding resentments and won't tie to you. You haven't grown. You're full of yourself still. After all these meetings, over all these years, you have not changed a bit. You've tried to refine your iniquity, but you can't. You've got to crucify it. You've got to crucify it. You know what Jesus said in the last days? But Lord, he said, we prophesied in your streets. He said, I've never known you. He said, whoa, 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 man, we run all the meetings. We prophesied, we cast out devils, we worked miracles, Lord, we had big ministries. You know what Jesus said to these self-serving important people? He said, it's Luke 21, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. They don't make it. You see, iniquity, by virtue of being iniquity, secondly this morning, leads to captivity. Captivity. I got a definition out of Webster's Dictionary for captivity. It's the state of being a prisoner or of being in the power of an enemy by force. 
Now, can the devil just take you? First of all, captivity is a state in which a man exists as a prisoner to somebody else. When they were carried away captivity in the Bible, a foreign country came, invaded the country, defeated the country. Not only did they spoil the country, rob the country, take all their good things, but they take the people back to their country and make slaves out of them. They're captive. They're serving somebody else instead of their own country. They're captives. We use the word curse a lot to describe that. Because I believe, it's my opinion, that most of humanity just about is under a curse. Because they're not free. And there's so many ways a curse can come, but it never comes without a cause. You know that, the curse causeless comes. It always has a reason a curse comes upon a person. It shouldn't. And if you're under one, you can get out from under it this morning. But it shouldn't come. You should not be a slave to all the things that people are a slave to. Their habits, their feelings, they're infected by their friends, they're affected by money. Money will bring you into captivity because it controls people. It owns you. You live to make money. You're worth $50 million and you have a bad day because you didn't make a nickel. Just money. And they can't let go of it. They're not givers. People like that aren't givers. How could you give it away when you work so hard to get it? And never see that you couldn't get anything unless God gave you the getting ability. Or because of a job they have, a wrong job. Do you know there are jobs that Christians shouldn't have? There are jobs that a Christian should not be involved in. There are places that Christians should not go, like a bar. Wouldn't it be awful if the Lord came and you were drinking a beer down to the local pub? Pub, what's that? A bar? Captivity. What do we mean by captivity when you say we're prisoners? Well, think of Job. Remember Job? At the end of Job, when Job finally got his eyes open to see uh, things he had never seen before. And the Bible says, and the Lord turned to captivity of Job. What was Job's captivity? Well, he had lost everything he had, his poverty for one. Everything he owned was gone. The devil destroyed. The devil who comes to that's right, kill, steal, and destroy. The devil did that. He got permission from God to do that, and he took away everything this man had. And the devil robbed him of all his children, killed all his kids. Not one, all of them. This man had to mourn the death of every one of his children. Everything he had, his camels and his donkeys and whatever else they carried away, and then there he sat as a final part of his judgment with boils or loathsome sores all over him. He couldn't even get comfortable. He had to sit on an ash heap because they think somehow the ashes had a way of giving a soothing relief to this loathsome condition. He had people didn't want to look at him. His three friends, when they came to see him, they sat there for a week, looked at him. I think it was a week. And just stared at him like, oh, man. This guy was the mouthpiece of this land in Job 29. Even Job said, I was, I was, I was, and I am, and I was. Now look at him. The captivity of Job had to do with poverty and sickness. 
for he had a full measure of both. Mourning the loss of his family, the loss of his land, and all this other stuff. And God watched the whole thing from his vantage point because God said, Job will never quit me over this. Job will not quit me over all of this. The devil said, I bet he will. No, he won't. And they found out. They found out. And the captivity of Job was turned. How many people in the church are captive to something like that? We may not know all the details about it. But that is a form of captivity. That's one of the things that happens. The devil can do this. The Bible says don't give place to the devil. Remember that, Ephesians 4? Don't give place to the devil. Don't give place to the devil. We are all aware of his devices. He's a subtle creature. We've read how he worked. We know how he works. We also know by what Peter wrote that he goes about like a roaring lion. He's looking for whoever he can find that he can devour or swallow down or drink down. And he goes all the time. He's looking for you having that bad day. For those of you that hear the word but you don't know if you can do that or not, he's just looking for you so he can snare you. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, speaking of those souls in the church who just want to argue and fuss with you all the time. And he says it like this, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. Can that be? Read it now, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. The accuser of the brethren this morning stands before God day and night to accuse you folks that have heard more than most folks. You've got more to live with than most folks do. When God gives you more, he expects more. And the devil knows he's a legal expert. He looks for the bad confessions and the bad actions and the dismal behavior. He looks for you like that. And he looks for a reason to accuse you and to lay hold of you and to snare you. And God doesn't prevent him from doing that. Jesus is our defending attorney at the right hand of God. What he defends is not you as a person. He defends his word as you live it. And he can sustain you. He says, well, this one here, he didn't do that that these other people are doing. He didn't buy that, go there, or watch that. And he said, I can't do that because the Bible said so. He said, I'm on his side. The devil can't do nothing about a man living right. What's he going to do with that? So the devil's an enticer. You ever heard the word entice? He tries to mislead you. Tries to make you think like the world thinks, the elements of this world, the rudiments of this world. It gets you to think like that. It's okay to wear that, isn't it? I mean, everybody else does. Are you going to be Jeremiah? You're going to walk around with a sack on and, and say you're part of what's going on? Oh, come on, man. You got too nice a figure to dress like that. After all, you get a lot of looks. And God would say, you shouldn't do that. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You don't need a piece of paper that says you can wear it this long, you can wear it this short, you can go here, but you can't drink that. We're not living by laws and pieces of paper. 
We're living by that inspiration that the Holy Spirit gives to his people on the inside. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is a sin. If your conscience bears witness against something, you must also take a stand against something. I don't care who else does. It's the way we live. And when self rises up and begins to reason falsely, well, I know. then you're opening a door to the devil who as a subtle creature comes in and lays hold of you and snares you. That's why you don't have any peace and no joy. That's why marriages are struggling and kids misbehave and are rebellious because rebellion is at the very core of iniquity. I guess iniquity and rebellion is the same root. Not word, but life. And you become captive. You become snared. And it's so easy today to be snared. There's so many ways to be snared. Jesus said in the last days, the difficult things that will come, love of money and all, he said, it will be a snare. It'll be a snare to the end because it will cause distractions. We'll get our eyes off of this narrow way and begin to look at what we're missing, which is hell. But you'll get your eyes off of that and you'll think, man, and you begin to make wrong decisions. You begin to do wrong things. And you open up a door for a curse. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this word curse, but when I think of captivity, I think of a curse. I think in Deuteronomy 28, the book that speaks about curses in the whole chapter, how God said, if you will diligently hearken to my word, incline your ear into my sayings, and not let them pass from your left or to your right and so forth. He said, all these blessings shall come upon you. Then he says down in verse 15 or 16, but if you are unwilling to keep my word before you and to live according to what it says and to have a heart for it, he said, all these curses, all these curses shall come upon you. I mean, curses galore. 50 verses, you've got curse after curse after curse. Would you turn back there for just a moment. I just want to show you a couple of them. I'm sure you know them already, but allow me to show myself. Deuteronomy 28. What a chapter. Deuteronomy 28, verse 41. Thou shalt begat sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. Maybe they become alcoholics, drunkards, or worse. In this case, he's probably talking about they shall be conquered by another country and become slaves in that country. But in a spiritual sense, in a New Testament sense, a lot of parents don't enjoy their children. You know what that verse says? We should. Youngsters, we should enjoy you. We shouldn't hear a car coming in the driveway and instead of somebody in the church that we don't like, it's one of our kids now. Oh, no, what do they want now? Shouldn't be like that. Our families getting together should be a good time. Nobody's perfect. That's why when we tell our kids some of the things, well, I'll tell you one thing. When I was your age, my mom and everybody said that. And the kid finally says, well, you had better parents than I did. <laughs> so you have to leave that one alone too. But he said, you won't enjoy them because they will go into captivity. Why would they go into captivity? Hosea 4, 6. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject your children. God help us. Their well-being 
depends on choices that we make. God will honor the right choices. Look at Deuteronomy 11, 27, 28. He had said, behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And a curse if what? A curse if you won't obey. Then you can say, well, we're not under the law anymore. This is an eternal principle. It'll never change. God said, I'll bless you if you obey. You're under a curse if you do not obey. And your Bible says that. If you turn aside to the way that I tell you to go after other gods, which is what they did in Jeremiah's day. They turned to idols and they turned to different ways. They turned aside from God. Jeremiah said, you're all going to be pummeled for this. And they said, oh, shut up. And he wept. Because that very thing happened. I can see these people led away captive. There was Zedekiah, the last king in 586 B.C., the last of the kings. One of the great-grandsons of Josiah, the last good king. And there he was, somewhat favorable to Jeremiah, but he kept listening to wrong stuff, tried to flee to Egypt. They got him, brought him back. They brought all of his children in front of him and killed each one of them. And he had to watch them all die. Then they put his eyes out blinded him and carried him away captive with chains around his neck all the way over to Babylon. You know what? If he had to do all over again, I bet he would have been on his knees crying for mercy. Just like if everybody that perished and went to hell, if only one of them, any of them, any one of them could come back this morning, I would listen with intensity. You talk about preaching a message about repentance and getting living right. Whew, nobody would do it better than that guy would or that lady. We're living in the last days. Here's what Jeremiah said about whom he sends. Whoever they are, this is what he says about whom he sends. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 22 says this. Let me just quote it. He said, but if they had stood, talking about the messengers, real and true messengers, if they had stood in my council, and had caused my people to hear my words, God said, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Let me ask you a question as we come to a close. How do you turn people away from the evil of their doings and the evil and the error of their way? How do you turn them from that? You give them a word from God. You give them a word from God. God said, who has stood in my counsel? Who is really interested in what God has to say to these people? So they stand in your counsel to hear from the Lord and then declare that word as God gives it because this is the way that God will turn us from our evil ways and turn us away from his judgments. Now, it sounds bad because our last point, last week I gave you four points. Messengers, their message, captivity, and lastly, if I could say number four from last week, is God's compassion. We don't end on a bad note this morning. I'm going to leave you in here stumbling around trying to get right, unless you need to, of course. But if you go back to Lamentations again, you were in chapter 2. Now look in chapter 3. This is hope. 
This is God's word to us who deserve to be judged. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. God doesn't just say, I'm going to afflict my people. He doesn't do that. Things like that happen because of what we do, not because of him wanting to afflict us. Verse 36, he said, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. God isn't trying to hurt us. God isn't wanting to judge us and smite us. God's will this morning is not to see us perish. God wants us all to turn around and repent. That's what his word is about. Look at yourself in light of this word. Let this word be a mirror. Look at yourself. What do you see? Deal with it. Deal with it. I have to judge sin. I don't want to judge you. So deal with it. Deal with it. In fact, let's close with this in the same light. Go to Ezekiel 18. That's just a book to the right. Go to Ezekiel 18, the next book over. And look at this, what he said in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one of you according to his ways, saith the Lord. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why should you die? Verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. God does not delight in judgments. God is not pleased to say, ha, ah, I caught you in your sin. Now you're going to get it. That's not what he wants. Your sins and your iniquities separate between you and God, but God doesn't leave you there. He comes back and says, if you will repent. All these shackles will be broken. Your captivity will be terminated and you can come to the Lord and be free and have peace and joy. For that's what the kingdom of God is, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants. He doesn't want us to languish in a resentful, ugly state that I described a while ago. He doesn't want you to be that kind of person that people know is difficult after 30 years, still difficult. He doesn't want you to be like that. But he will judge that. And he will cause his message to hit your heart so that you know you're like that and give you a chance to deal with it because he cares. And if you don't want to deal with it, then you give him no other choice. What did he say in Ezekiel 22 there? He says, I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap before me. Ezekiel 22 is a picture of horrible sins amongst his people. I mean, horrible, ugly, nasty stuff. And God said, I'm, I'm going to judge you. But here's the deal. If I can find one man in this whole land, just one soul, one. One individual who will stand before me on the behalf of you people that are going to be judged. If one man will stand before you, I will spare you. And nobody could. Everybody was doing his own thing. And their judgments were devastating. 
just devastating. Instead of carried off into captivity, these were ripped open and killed and fed to the birds. I mean, they were just slaughtered. It didn't have to be. They could have turned from all their wicked ways. They could have given up all their selfishness before God. And God would have had to judge them. But no, they wanted to do that. No, they wanted it their way. Like he said in Lamentations, let us search and try our way. What a beautiful song. There's still a few good songs around. Not a lot, but a few. Let us search and try our ways. Why? And measure ourselves before the Lord. When we see that we're not right, let us turn again to the Lord. God gives you that. He doesn't just say, you crossed the line, you're out. But he says, look, you're setting yourself up for judgment. Now, you either stop that or I'm going to have to judge you. Look, why should you perish? Why should you die? How many of you know God is long-suffering? Come on. You shouldn't do that. You're not supposed to be like that. Have I not told you not to do that? Don't do that. Look. This is what's going to happen to you, but it doesn't have to be like that. I don't want to judge you. I don't want to have to see you stand before me as somebody created in my image and just say, not you, depart from me, you workers of a I don't want to do that. I want the message to pinpoint my iniquity. Whatever God's going to judge, I want God to show me what it is. Don't you? Because if I can see that, my captivity can be turned. I won't have it anymore. I want it to turn in closing, truly closing. Would you turn to our communion chapter, 1 Corinthians 11? And we'll close with this and approach the communion table with this in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul has said that because you people don't get along with each other, because you fight over nothing and you're difficult and so forth, you're not getting anything good coming from the Lord. You've got healing ministries in your church. You've got all kinds of power ministries. You've got prophets, apostles, evangelists. You've got the whole package in your church, and yet you've got people in your church that die early. You've got people that are sick and don't get healed. And then he concludes, he said, this is why. Let me tell you why. Verse 30, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep or die. For, verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. As one commentator says, if we saw ourselves as God sees us and shows us, we would not cause God to have to judge us. The revelation that God gives about our problem is designed not to torment us, but to show us what we should repent of. Are you with me? And in verse 33, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. This is God's compassion here, that we should not be condemned along with the rest of the world. The world is full of people that God has already said. He gave them up to their vile passions. He turned them over. He's not dealing with them anymore. 
His compassions are for us to turn us from our sins so he doesn't have to judge us. That's what he's doing. So we take the warning this morning from Jeremiah. How easy it is to think you've come so far and you know so much, but one day realize you're not living half of what you heard. You can't live like that before God, but God is a loving and compassionate God. He said, I'm going to take you to heaven because I've called you. Here's the deal. Either you correct yourself or I'm going to correct you. You say, well, I got time. Okay, then I'll correct you. Let me tell you something. If you get the choice, do it yourself. It's much rather for you to deal with it than for God to deal with it because he'll deal with it very firmly. But whom he loves, he deals with. Look at verse 32 again. Why does he deal with you? So what? You won't be condemned with everybody else. He's got to judge all of that stuff. So in your life, he hammers your headpiece. Or he really deals with you, put it that way. He really deals with you because if he does not, he has to judge you. So he gets on your case. So that you finally, oh God, I submit. He's good. I don't have to judge you now. And he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He can't say, well, well done, thou church membership with a new baptismal certificate. Dunk three times, forward and backwards. He just says, come on in. How about you folks? How about it this morning? What you've heard now for how many years? How many years have you heard? You can add it up. How many years have you been hearing the word of God? Now look in the mirror. How much of it is evident? Am I living right now like I've been told to live? Have I made the right choices? Well, I'm going to approach the communion table this morning, not only grateful for my deliverance from sin, but I'm going to ask God to deal with my heart. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, as we approach the communion table, the bread and the cup representing the life and the victory of our Lord, all of it done for us. May we examine ourselves before we approach this time to see where we are, to take stock of ourselves, our choices, how we're living right now. Are we avoiding judgment or are we setting ourselves up for it? Are we hearing your loving and compassionate plea to repent or are we just taking advantage of that? Grant us this morning, O oh Lord, in this time of quietness and solitude before your table, grant us a heart to hear and make right decisions. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the passion of your sacrifice, we saw the prophecy fulfilled. The healer of the the crucified. I hear you say, come follow me. So I will. Yes, I will follow you, Jesus, all the way up that hill. Follow you, Jesus, all the way up that hill to the cross where the river runs.
Crimson even still, yes I will follow you Lord, I will. Down that sacred path you bled for us, scorned and broken up that hill. Terrible the cross, how glorious I hear you say, come follow me So I will, yes I will Follow you Jesus all the way up that hill Follow you Jesus all the way up that hill To the cross where the river runs Crimson even still, yes I will follow you, Lord, I will, yes I will. I'll follow you, Jesus, all the way up that hill. Follow you, Jesus, all the way up that hill to the cross where the river runs. Crimson even still, yes I will follow you, Lord, I will, yes I will.